I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Today we are going to conclude our study of the book of 1 Peter. We've been in it for some time. And we give attention to Peter's final words to his readers. And in this final section, we discover what Peter has been writing about the whole time. He has been writing about the seemingly unlikely true grace of God. It seems unlikely. It feels, particularly when you are suffering, like this cannot possibly be the true grace of God. And yet Peter writes to assure us that it is. Peter writes us to assure us that while the road is difficult, it is the one that leads to glory. And he invites us and exhorts us to stand firm in Christ then. Let us give attention to these final words. If you're using your pew Bibles, you're going to find this passage to be on page 1214, uh, rather 215. This is 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a holy, with a kiss of love. Peace be to all who are in Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would send now the Holy Spirit to teach us this passage, to lay it upon our hearts. Father, may you teach us today what it means that suffering accomplishes things, that it brings you glory and honor. Father, we pray that you would help us to persevere, especially when our lives as Christians are difficult, knowing, Father, that you have eternal glory in Christ prepared for us, to know that this is the true grace of God. Help us to stand firm in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you think of suffering as an accomplishment? Do you think of suffering as an accomplishment? I don't know about you, but that is a very foreign idea to me. I don't usually think of suffering as an accomplishment. In those few times in my life where I have anticipated suffering that is coming, I don't think that that suffering that is coming is something to be accomplished. And yet Peter says in this passage, that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
he speaks of suffering as something to be accomplished. And yet that is very counterintuitive because usually suffering feels rather like a waste. It is what you do when you might otherwise be accomplishing something productive. And if you have felt that, it is the attack of Satan, one of Satan's cruelties, as he roars around like a lion, you know, prowling, seeking someone to devour. He looks for those who are vulnerable in their suffering, and he says to them, you suffer all in vain and to no purpose. Elizabeth Elliot certainly felt that way at times in her uh, uh, you know, service as a missionary. As you may know, Elizabeth Elliot was a Bible-translating missionary in South America. And she was working there with a man named Macario. And he was the only person their mission uh, team could find who spoke both languages that were relevant to her project, Spanish and Colorado. And yet, after the work had begun and before it was completed, Macario was murdered in a senseless act of violence. The work that they had done for so long and committed themselves to came to a standstill. And there was no one uh, there present to help them complete the project. And as though that weren't bad enough, subsequently, first, they lost some of their files of the work that they had already completed in a flood. And then they lost the remainder of their files in a burglary after that. So that all of their time and effort came uh, to an absolute se uh, sense of loss. They had nothing to show for all of their time and effort having translated, uh, seeking to translate God's word. Then, shortly thereafter, she met her husband, Jim Elliott. And uh, many of you know the story there. Jim Elliott, a uh, time later, with his missionary team, was seeking to reach a remote people that were known to be hostile. And in seeking to try to make contact with them, Jim Elliott, her husband now, and uh, four of the other missionaries were speared to death. Again, a profound sense of loss and worthlessness. She felt Satan's attack, saying, you suffer all in vain. She felt the vanity of suffering. She wrote a book based on her experience called No Graven Image. In the book, there is a translator, much like herself, who loses everything, and her translator dies. And in this story, uh, the character is even blamed for the death of the translator. There was a, a medical component to the, mission, uh, to the missionary work. The man fell ill. They tried uh, to uh, treat him unsuccessfully, and as a result, she is now blamed by the community for the death of this translator that had been working with her. And the book concludes with her standing at the grave of the translator. And I finished, the book concludes with this question. And does he now expect me to worship him? In the face of profound loss. That is the devil's attack that this cannot possibly be the true grace of God that you are experiencing right now. That if this is the true grace of God, 
It is not worth bothering about. Why do you persevere through times of suffering and loss? Now that you have nothing to show, why do you persist further down this path? That is the way that Satan attacks those who are vulnerable, who are suffering. You suffer in vain. If this is the true grace of God, he is not worth your worship or your trust. Peter writes to protect the flock from this roaring lion and his accusations. And he ministers to us today. Today, through God's word, Peter says to you and to me, he says, first of all, that suffering is an accomplishment. He says, secondly, what it ultimately accomplishes is eternal glory in Christ by God's grace. Thirdly, this is the true grace of God, and therefore we are to stand firm in it. That's how he seeks to protect the flock under his care, those who are uh, under his charge, and it's what he ministers to us today as well. Suffering is an accomplishment. The end of it all is eternal glory in Jesus Christ. This is, hard as it is, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it, and do not allow that roaring lion to deter you and take you off of this path. Stand firm in Christ. So let's look at those uh, four points. First of all, the accomplishment of suffering. Satan prowls around. He is looking for someone who is weak and vulnerable among the flock. And those are oftentimes those who are suffering and who are feeling the impact of suffering. And in his cruelty, he attacks with the idea that they suffer all in vain that their suffering accomplishes nothing, it's all pointless, and he seeks to get that uh, weak flock to uh, leave the path of faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter, as I said, is seeking to protect the flock, and he says something very strange and counterintuitive to our ears. He says that suffering accomplishes things. It is itself an accomplishment to suffer. And that idea is found in verse 9. We are to resist Satan's attack, firm in our faith, knowing that Christians all over the world are accomplishing suffering. Suffering is therefore, in Peter's language, an accomplishment. That is a very counterintuitive and strange idea because usually we do not think of suffering as an accomplishment at all. In fact, we uh, think of it just the opposite. For one... Suffering is always, it's not something you do. Suffering is something that happens to you. It is done to you. It is something that we would avoid if we were able to do so. And therefore, it's strange to us to think of suffering as something that we do in the first place. But secondly, it's strange to think that if it is something that we do, that we are accomplishing something by it. Because suffering feels to be exactly the opposite. Suffering is not an accomplishment, it is a waste. It feels like an utter waste. Suffering is what uh, prevents us from accomplishing things. We would do more, we oftentimes say to ourselves in the midst of suffering. We would do more and we would accomplish more, but now we are suffering, and suffering is preventing us from accomplishment. And yet Peter says that sufferings are accomplishments. 
Now, as I translated it this week, I looked for a word, a different English word, that would carry Peter's sense more accurately or better, give us greater insight. The reality is, accomplishment is uh, probably the best word to describe Peter's intention. To accomplish something is to fulfill a purpose. To accomplish something. And suffering in itself is an accomplishment. And it does two things that I'd like to, uh, these are sort of the two, first two points of the sermon, that first of all, suffering is inter, an integral part of how we fulfill our calling as God's people, and then therefore it can be said to be an accomplishment. It fulfills our purpose. It is a crucial part of us fulfilling our calling as Christians. But secondly, and this is really the, uh, to anticipate the second point, it also fulfills God's purposes for us, eternal glory in Christ. But first of all, let us focus on what uh, our uh, suffering accomplishes. What purpose does suffering fulfill? What does it accomplish? What does it do? First of all, the first thing that I would draw your attention to as uh, Peter, we have to draw you know, material from uh, Peter's letter. But the first thing is that it glorifies Christ. You remember that in chapter 1, verse uh, 7, he talks about how uh, he compares trials to the fire that only prove how precious a redeemer Christ is. Christ is pure gold, and all of the fires of trials that we experience in life cannot destroy Christ, but will only result in praise and glory and honor when Christ comes and proves to be pure gold and delivers us from all of our suffering. Trials glorify Christ, and as we, in the midst of our suffering, continue to look to Christ, in our weakness, in the mess that our hearts are oftentimes in, as we look to Christ, we glorify him as the one who alone is able to bring us through. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, Christ stands out against that dark backdrop as a precious redeemer. And we glorify him in that. It's very important that you understand that suffering accomplishes uh, glorifying Christ. Think about that for a moment, because it applies to your own personal relationship that you have with Christ himself. Oftentimes, in the midst of suffering, as you know, we, and we think about, you know, what is, could this possibly accomplish? We are tempted to reason to ourselves like this. You know, this would be worth it, everything that we are experiencing, if just one person came to know Christ. If I could see one person, you know, then I could see some good that could possibly come from this. Joni Erickson Tata, no uh, stranger to suffering herself, uh, you, know, she, you know, she was in a diving board accident, uh, diving accident when she was uh, young, 17. As she was uh, recovering in the hospital, her roommate, uh, she observed her roommate who was also suffering and, and uh, dying next to her. And she said at the beginning, when she was first brought in, there were all these visitors, and then soon nobody was around. She wrestled with it. Why is this happening? She was a believer, a fellow believer. Nobody is even seeing her suffering. How can it impact anybody if nobody is even around to see it? Which raised the question in, in Joni Erickson Tata's mind, what if nobody sees? And it led her first to the conclusion that even if nobody sees, the angels in heaven see. And that is no small por uh, point. It's substantiated by uh, Scripture. In Ephesians 3, Paul says that God manifests his wisdom through the church 
to authorities and rulers and powers in the heavenly places. If nobody sees, rulers and powers and authorities in heavenly places see. And we glorify Christ in, uh, before that audience. You know how Job, the, the, the whole way the book of Job works itself out. How Job suffered, and yet Satan was there saying, Listen, God, the only reason that Job uh, you know, continues to, to worship you and trust you is because you do all these good things for him. Look how he's prospering. Take away his prosperity. He will curse you to your face. Job's suffering took place before the audience of those in heavenly places as they looked in and said, is it true that God is only worshipped for what you get out of him and not for who he is in himself? That drama unfolded before heaven, and Johnny Erickson Sada at least said, look, the angels see. But when we say that our suffering glorifies Christ, one of the things we need to understand, it is not just angels. In our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as we endure suffering, looking to Christ as our Savior, and the only one who can deliver us out of this mess, we glorify Christ. It is Christ who sees and receives glory and honor through the faith that we place in him in spite of everything that we are going through. Sort of like the faith of Job when he said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. There is salvation and hope and life and blessing nowhere else, whatever I may experience in the meantime, I trust in Jesus. We glorify him as we endure uh, not always glamorous in the way that we conduct ourselves as we suffer, but looking to Christ. Although we are very weak, we know that Christ, when he comes, will not prove to be weak as we are in our devotion, in the quality of our faith, in our uh, you know, uh, walk with Christ in those moments. Christ will prove to be a great Savior to us, and we glorify him in that sense. So we glorify Christ. Suffering accomplishes things. It glorifies Christ, and that is not a small thing to anyone who loves their Savior. Secondly, and this applies specifically to being reviled, but Peter has shown us that being reviled confirms that you are saved in Jesus Christ. And the logic, you remember, goes like this, that if the world treats you the way that it treated Christ, reviling you, it means that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. You're sharing the same treatment, and you remember that uh, Peter was making that point in, uh, chapter, in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 and following. Being reviled, that, that kind of suffering does things. It accomplishes something, and it accomplishes something for you. It confirms that you are in Christ. It confirms that if you share in the sufferings of Christ, you are reviled for the name of Christ, as Peter talks about. It means that you share in the sufferings of Christ, and if you share in the sufferings of Christ, you share in all that Christ has. By sharing in the sufferings of Christ, you come to know that you also share the righteousness of Christ. The sacrificial death of Christ is also yours, you come to uh, discover and learn. And the glory of Christ is yours. Even if you don't presently experience it, yet in due time it is yours, and you it assures you of that hope. Being reviled, that kind of suffering confirms that we are in Christ. And finally, it fulfills God's calling for us. This is the third thing. Uh, and God's calling for us is that we, through 
uh, having good behavior, keeping our behavior excellent, might lead others to glorify the Lord. I direct your attention to uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's another thing that suffering oftentimes accomplishes. And here, and this is really one of the main uh, kinds of suffering that Peter has in mind, it is suffering in doing good. Doing good in hard places for the glory of the Lord. When you do that and you know, keep your behavior excellent, serve not only those who are easy to serve, but those who are also hard to serve. Keep your behavior above reproach and excellent in order that others might be led by seeing you, even as you suffer in that difficult situation, yet continuing to do good, that others may be led to glorify the Lord. We must always remember that we are, as Peter says, strangers and aliens. Which means, if I can put it to you in this way, we, God has us, we're not home. Our home is in the new creation. And if your experience is strange, know this, you are out on a mission. God does not have you home. He might have taken you home the moment he saved you. He has you out on a mission. And your mission is to glorify him by doing good works that he has prepared for you to do in this world. And that in order that through that, God may bring himself glory and draw many to Christ. There are uh, striking and uh, noteworthy ways that this happens in our lives, and there are the daily ways that this happens. Uh, in his book on suffering, Tim Keller talks about uh, a particular incident from uh, 2006. A gunman broke into a one-room schoolhouse in an Amish community, and that gunman shot 10 of the students, and five of them uh, died. And afterwards, he shot, uh, the gunman shot himself. He was a young man. He left behind a wife and children. And the widow, the wife of the gunman, was shocked and uh, bowled over when at the funeral service for her husband, fully half of the people present were Amish. There was no bitterness, no resentment. They were not there to heckle or to cause misery. They were there in forgiveness and in love. And it got the attention of the entire community. The media even got involved, and they were confused about where this love and this forgiveness could possibly have come from. That is a noteworthy way in which a community gathered together and they attended this funeral in love. The thing is, the thing that really mystified people is there was not a single person among the Amish present that day who was struggling secretly with bitterness. It was true forgiveness. And it led many in that community to glorify God. Where does this come from? But there are also the daily ways. God calls you and I. Uh, I draw your attention to chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. You have a calling, a mission. And when you su suffering is part of your fulfilling that mission, because in the previous verse, what have we been called to? But if when you endure, uh, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure. This finds favor with God. We are called to do what is right in hard places. When the only thing that doing right and doing what is pleasing to God, uh, the only thing, the result is that you suffer more for it. 
That is our mission. Suffering is an integral part of the way that we fulfill our mission and calling before the Lord. And Peter says you do that in the workplace. Tomorrow you will go to your workplace. Your mission is to do good even when it is hard. Even when your boss treats you harshly and does not appreciate or value you. When you do good work in that kind of a situation, you are, it's suffering is involved, but you are fulfilling your mission. When in marriages, you do what is right before the Lord, even when uh, certain circumstances in marriage can be very difficult, certain times in marriage, maybe uh, there are circumstances Christians find themselves in where their spouse, something is going on that makes it very difficult. When you do good in your marriage, Peter writes, you are fulfilling your mission. There is suffering involved in that. There is sacrifices that are made in seeking to continue to do good. And yet you are in that suffering fulfilling your mission, the reason that God has you here. And it can go on. We also serve our country. Remember uh, Peter's uh, sort of instructions that he gives us as we live our life and fulfill this mission. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is our calling. Suffering is an integral part of our lives here. We are not home yet. We are out on a mission, and as long as we are in a fallen world, we share with the sufferings of others in this world. But there is a purpose, and our suffering is a vital part of a, it accomplishes something. It glorifies Christ. It even glorifies Christ in the, in the heavenly places before the rulers and powers and authorities that are there. But it also has an effect. Oftentimes, if it's being reviled, it confirms that you are in Christ. And that has a purpose it fulfills for you. But it also leads others to glorify the Lord. And that, too, has meaning. Suffering is an accomplishment. And those of you that have been through suffering know that it is really an accomplishment. When you suffer, the time, uh, the, the energy... It is a drain. It is difficult to suffer. You know how it drains your resources. You know the work that is involved in suffering. Suffering is an accomplishment. And God counts it that way as well. Suffering is a, a vital part of the way that we fulfill our calling as Christians in this world. So that's the uh, uh, accomplishment of suffering. But if this path that we are on, the Christian life, if it were an unending path, a dark path full of uh, you know, treacherous places that we oftentimes slip and fall down and hurt ourselves, and if this suffering were to continue endlessly, we would all soon lose heart and be discouraged, and we would soon quit the way. And that is why Peter assures us the assurance of glory. This path is hard, but it is not an endless path of suffering. After, you know, verse, this is uh, verse 10 in our passage. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. One of the things, the ultimate thing that your suffering accomplishes when Satan comes to you and says, you suffered to no purpose and to no end. Peter answers that and he says, that it is not for no purpose and no end that I suffer. I suffer to the end because God has called me to his eternal glory in Christ. It is to that end that I suffer. 
Peter assures you that if you are on a very difficult path, it will not go on forever like this, but one day it will all break open into a, a broad and beautiful place of blessedness, and you will dwell with the Lord forever after a little while of suffering. This is a hard path to be on, yes, but it is going somewhere. Your present walking of this path of suffering is how you get there. Suffering, in a certain sense, you can say, accomplishes glory. Peter speaks that way. As you may recall, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, when he says that these light and momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them. Now, I know what some of you are going through, and what you are going through feels anything but light and momentary. It is a profound statement to say that what God has for us far outweighs. It is so, it so far outweighs your present suffering that it makes those sufferings that you are going through that are very real and painful right now light and momentary. Our God always over delivers. It's true of very few things in life. Almost everything you expect and you hope for in life and you finally get your hands on in due time proves to be less than you thought. God is in the habit of over-delivering on his promises, doing far more than all you can ask or imagine. This glory that he has in mind, if you wonder, is it worth it? Remember who God is. He has proven even in history that he always over-delivers on his promises. There is an eternal weight of glory that this path leads to and it is yours in Christ. And Peter uh, tells us what, uh, something of what this glory will entail. Uh, this eternal glory uh, will involve that God himself will, first of all, perfect us. That language means to be put in a well-functioning condition. <laughs> that ministers to us in the midst of our suffering, because when you are suffering, you feel like anything but well-functioning. I am not well-functioning in the midst of suffering. One day... You will, all, you will be put together in such a way you will, you will flourish. You will function well, however you may have suffered in the meantime. God will perfect you, put you together the way that you're supposed to be put together, and you will function well in the new creation. So God will perfect you. Secondly, God will confirm you, which means to fix you in place. You will be put in a good condition, and you will be fixed in that good condition forever. Never again to experience tears and suffering and hardship and pain. You will be put together forever. He will perfect you. He will confirm you in that perfected state. Thirdly, he will strengthen you. Suffering feels like weakness. You feel vulnerable. There's so much that is uncertain when you are suffering. You don't know what the future brings, and sometimes I know some of you in the midst of your suffering don't know what on a given day the afternoon brings. Suffering can be that way. But at last, a, even though we feel very weak, we will be strengthened. We will be strengthened. We will not feel vulnerable and uncertain. Because, again, there will be no more suffering and no more tears and no more dying and no more disease. God will also establish you. And that means to build you up on a fir uh, firm foundation. The reason that you are strengthened and put in a uh, well-functioning condition and fixed in that forever is because you are built on the foundation of Christ and not your own righteousness. 
Go all the way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Humanity's happiness was built on the foundation dependent on Adam. And Adam sinned. We all sinned in Adam because of our covenantal relationship with him. Our happiness that we had in the garden was very tenuous. It was not built on a solid foundation, or it was built on a foundation that proved to be faulty, and the whole thing fell apart. Will that happen again? No! In the new creation, in the new creation, it is going to be that all of our happiness forever depends upon Jesus Christ, a solid foundation. That is why your happiness will never be threatened or taken away from you again. You will be built upon the foundation of Christ as the new head of all humanity that come to him. No doubt that you have been on many hikes where you wonder if it is going to be worth it when you get to the top. But we have this assurance that there is a top and it will not disappoint you for all that you endure in the meantime. Peter is adamant that this is the true grace of God. And when you're suffering, you need to know that it is the true grace of God because it doesn't feel like it. When you are suffering in this world and the misery is real and the pain, you're feeling it and experiencing it. There will be times when you wonder, is this the true grace of God? Can this possibly be what he has for me? Peter is writing to his readers to assure them that in the midst of all the suffering they're experiencing, this is the true grace of God. You see him doing that in verse 12. We can return to Elizabeth Elliot's question at the beginning in her book, No Graven Image. After all that she had lost, does God now expect me to worship him? She wanted to bring people through that book into her struggling in order that they might come to the conclusion that she came to, which is a resounding yes. But it's not an easy answer to come to, particularly when you are suffering. Does God still expect us to suffer when it seems like he has taken everything away from us and we have, feel like we have accomplished nothing? Is God still worth worshiping at that point? She says that she experienced all of that loss, not right away, but in due time, she experienced it as being set free. The thing is, she realized that in strange ways, she had begun to treat God in her relationship with him as though he were her personal assistant, her accomplice. God was there to help her do the work that she had to do. And the question was, when he fails as a personal assistant, do I just fire him? Is he still worshiping if he is not doing the things that I think he should be doing? She said it was evidence that her no graven image is her own confession of idolatry that she had turned God into a personal assistant and expected God to serve according to her will. And when she realized it, again, not right away, but as she worked through things, she realized she was free. She was so free from that view of God, free to worship God as God, she knew in that moment that she loved God for God and not just for what God could do for her. But that is not an easy place uh, to come to. And there are a couple things that have to take place in order for that realization to be real. The first thing that we have to realize is the source of suffering. Although we are here as strangers and, and aliens and we suffer, it is not as though we 
suffer as innocent bystanders who must remember we ourselves are accomplices in the misery that is in the world through our sin. Adam sinned, and we all sinned in Adam. And in Romans 5, we read, death spread to all because of it. All of the suffering and the pain and the hardship comes. It's not, you cannot blame God for it. If you're looking for something to blame, blame sin. Blame ourselves. We, through our sin, are the source of all of the suffering that is in the world. And if you want to know, first thing you need to realize is bad things happen sometimes because bad things happen. We are in a world where death has been unleashed through sin. Bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. And all things have not been set right yet. And the suffering, we have been accomplices in it through our own sin. But the second thing that must happen is you must look to the cross of Jesus Christ and consider God's wisdom and how he ministers to us. This strange way of gaining victory through a weak and despised Savior who was spat upon, who was reviled, who was mistreated and abused in his earthly days in his ministry and was put on a cross. God's wisdom is foolishness to the world. It makes no sense. Suffering accomplishes nothing. It's a waste. The disciples viewed the cross as a waste. What a waste! Christ could have done so much and accomplished so much. But now as it is, he has suffered and he has died, and it's all in vain. Then he rose again from the dead. And their view of God's wisdom and the purpose of suffering changed in that. Ultimately, what made the difference for Elizabeth Elliot in the midst of her struggles with pain was this observation. She said, those hands that keep a million worlds from spinning into oblivion were nailed motionless to a cross for us. Can you trust him? How can we not? In the midst of our suffering, we so often do not know why exactly something is happening. We do know who. We know that the fa- our Heavenly Father has sent His Son to die in our place. This is the true grace of God. And if we suffer, we suffer as those who are being conformed to the image and the likeness of the suffering servant. And that is why you are suffering, because of who your Savior is and the strange wisdom of God in bringing our salvation. Suffering has a purpose. This is the true grace of God, and therefore Peter concludes by saying, stand firm in it. Be sober. Satan would love to deceive you and to take advantage of your weakness in the midst of your suffering. Stand firm. Anticipate it beforehand. Do not get caught up. Do not lose your mind. Stand firm in this grace. As we conclude our study in 1 Peter, that means several things that we can take away from our study. How do we stand firm? First of all, know that Christ is pure gold. All the fires of suffering in this life cannot destroy our Savior. Already he has risen from the dead and he has ascended into heaven and he lives above those trials. And we are destined for, uh, to be like him. He will come and he will bring us into that same Uh, experience of blessedness. We too one day shall be above the sufferings of this life because Christ already is there. Look to him. Do not doubt in the midst of these trials that what is in your hand is pure gold. All the trials will only prove how precious Christ is. 
Second, uh, be sober and stay alert. And that means to embrace the fact, gain the insight that you are not home. Here we have no abiding place. Our true home is the new creation, and that as well, we will belong, and we will be nourished, and we will be blessed, and there will not be a problem or a care in the world as we dwell with the Lord in his love and in loving fellowship with uh, other believers forever. We're not there yet. Right now, God has you out on a mission. He has you here for a purpose, and suffering is involved. Suffering does not call the mission into question. In a sense, you can say it is the mission. Do not be surprised, then, if you know that you are a stranger and an alien, to discover that you are suffering as you are on this mission. But know that you are in God's hands, and he will be with you, and he will lead you and guide you. I love from the first, he gives us a living hope, and he says, you are kept by the power of God, protected, nourished, and sustained in this mission. Be sober and alert. You are on a mission. Do not lose sight of that fact. Do not think that you have a home here that is impervious to damage or to pain or to hurt. You still live in a fallen world, and it is not reasonable for you to expect a pain-free, comfortable existence. And know that God's calling while he has you here is to do good in hard places, in hard circumstances. It is God's way of glorifying himself as he works through you. He has given you good works to do, and he glorifies himself, and he draws many to Christ. That is why you are here, to glorify your heavenly Father, and to, uh, through him, God will draw many to Christ. And they, will too, will glorify in the day that he comes. Glorify Christ. Do good in your work. That is your calling. Do good in your marriages, even in hard circumstances. Do good in our community. Honor the king. Honor all people as we relate to everyone. In this way, we will glorify our heavenly father in the way that we conduct ourselves. Suffering is an accomplishment. It is the foolishness of God that we should suffer and that our Savior uh, suffered before us. But God's wisdom is strong. And our hope is sure. And so I urge you, as Peter urges us, stand firm in Christ. Persevere doing good to the glory of your Heavenly Father. And in due time, through this, by walking this hard road, you will arrive at the eternal glory that is yours in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, give you thanks and praise for who you are and for your strange and oftentimes confusing ways. Father, we look to the cross for wisdom at this point because you sent Christ and he suffered and he died and appeared to accomplish nothing from a human standpoint and yet, Father, he accomplished our salvation. And Father, we know that you are working through your people as well. You have given them good works to do, that you have prepared for them, that they should walk in them and we walk in it and we suffer, Father, along the way. Suffering is part of us fulfilling our mission that you have given us. Father, we pray that you would sustain us. We pray, Father, that you would give us uh, Christ always, that we would be near him and protected by him always. And Father, may we always have our eyes looking forward down the path to where the path ends in the eternal glory that is ours. Father, it is worth it to endure. Even though, Father, sometimes it appears that you have taken everything away from us, yet, Father, Christ remains and our hope lives. Father, minister this to our hearts. Make us your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.